Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 86 of X-Lapse, where I hope it's not too distracting, but somewhere down the block, someone is having tile removed from their house, and uh, the machinery to get this tile out of their house, well, I think they had to summon a demon to uh, to get this stuff up, because there's a lot of racket out there. Hopefully, the mic isn't picking it up, but generally speaking, the mic usually picks up everything I don't want it to, and uh, a lot of the stuff I do... Uh, Sometimes it doesn't, but we will hope for the best here. Today, we're going to be talking about the final uh, Wave 2 book of the Dawn of X uh, lineup here, and that is X-Factor Volume 4. Now, this was an issue, or a series, I should say, that I've been looking forward to uh, a great deal. And uh, ever since I found out that X-Factor was rejoining the lineup, I've been very anxious to get to it, and uh, that's because X-Factor, as a property is a very special one to me in that from it I learned probably more about the X-Men lore and X-Men history than any other book when I was starting out in my uh, little fandom career back in, you know, the early 1990s. X-Factor was, for all intents and purposes, the fourth book. You know, uh, there were the big four, which were Uncanny X-Men, X-Men Volume 2, X-Force, and then X-Factor kind of tailed, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have, you know, a hot artist on it. Uh, it would eventually have very popular artists on it, uh, in retrospect anyway, but it was always just that other book. And uh, by other book, I mean, it was a book that you could actually find in the back issue bins, not inflated to crazy, crazy prices like you would the other three uh, mainline X-Men books. And it was a book that I almost, and this is a story I've told uh, on this channel a couple times already, just I don't think I've ever done it on X-Lapsed. Though I could be mistaken, I do talk an awful lot, and uh, frankly I don't remember a whole lot of what I say because I do this a lot. So uh, we'll, uh, I'll just hope that this is novel or being presented in novel enough a way not to turn people off who have heard these stories before, but... Uh, X-Factor was a book I was never going to collect. As a matter of fact, I was never going to collect anything but X-Men Volume 2 when I started. I decided that was the book I wanted. That was the book that I figured I could probably go back and get the entire collection because I started at around 12 or 13. Uh, 13, actually. And so it wouldn't be too terribly difficult, or at least not outside the realm of possibilities, for me to go back and get everything from Issue 1 onward. So... X-Men Volume 2 was going to be the X-Men book I collected. Everything else I didn't really concern myself with. Of course, the second issue of X-Men Volume 2 I picked up was 
I want to say part three of the Executioner song. I didn't know what a crossover was at that point in time. I really, I didn't pay much mind to it. I figured, I figured that every issue should be able to be read on its own, which is kind of Pollyanna and kind of pie in the sky, and a sure sign of a newcomer to the uh, comics hobby, because that's uh, very seldom the case, even when it's not a crossover anymore. So I picked up that issue of X-Men Volume 2 and uh, realized very quickly that, uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to actually buy the other books that tie into this if I want to get the most out of it. And so I had to actually hunt down Uncanny X-Men, what was it, 294? I want to say 294, the one with Cable standing over Professor X. The first part of the Executioner song, I had to actually hunt that one down because it sold out everywhere. It sold out at the uh, local comic shops. I had to actually find it at a smoke shop and uh, just on a regular old spinner rack, which as a comic fan of that era was like the last place you'd look because, uh, I don't know, they just never really came to mind. Everything was at the comic shop, so the thought of having to go to a spinner rack, I don't know, just didn't come to mind, so... I had to track down that issue, and then, of course, I would have to track down part two of the uh, of the series, which was X-Factor. And I grabbed it, and uh, the thing about these issues were it was they didn't have the variant cover gimmick like we have today, so I really didn't have to pay attention to numbers. Um, all I had to pay attention to was uh, the fact that all of these books had a different gimmick. They were all poly-bagged with a trading card, so they were very, very easy to pick out. So I was just picking up the ones... With the, with the bag, right? You know, it wasn't, uh, this ain't rocket surgery. So I was picking those up. And uh, this is when I decided that I would be all in on the X-Men books. And so I remember I cleared out a shelf in my closet because I was going to have four four piles of, uh, you know, my massive, massive comics collection, which was like, you know, eight books at this point. I was going to have my uh, my Uncanny pile, my X-Men pile, my X-Force pile, and my X-Factor pile. And as I'm familiarizing myself with these things here, uh, I noticed something very bizarre about X-Factor, and that was the fact that the issues I was reading were numbered in the 80s, which is to say, you know, it was like issue 85. And I was just gobsmacked because I had never imagined that this was such a long-tenured title. And I sure I sure didn't know that it was originally started with the original five. Um, at this point in time, I'm sure I didn't know who the original five even were. I, I'm pretty sure uh, early in my collecting career, I remember getting... Um, I, th- I think it was Sons of Marvel Origins. Sons of Marvel Origins, maybe one of those. One of the you know compilations of the number one issues that would uh, that were collected, and you'd find them you know in a bookstore in a library. And uh, I think it was Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics I picked up, and it had X Men number one in it. And I was gobsmacked that like Wolverine wasn't in it. You know, I was I was amazed that the original five who were who they were, right? Uh, Beast, Iceman, Angel, Marvel Girl, Cyclops. I had a feeling Cyclops and Marvel Girl would be there. I didn't know about the other three. I didn't realize that they were that old or that integral to um, to the X-Men story. I was, like I said, I was very, very new. So, you know, I'm back to X-Factor here. I'm seeing that these are higher in numbers. And I was uh, 
shocked because I thought that it would have a similar number as X-Force and X-Men Volume 2. I figured it'd be like in the teens because I thought everything launched at the same time outside of, you know, the legacy book itself, Uncanny X-Men. And so I started digging in the back issue bins. And the thing about X-Factor is, like I said, it was like the fourth book. And I suppose at the time it was coming out, it was like the third book because it was just Uncanny and New Mutants and X-Factor. X-Factor was the book that didn't get upcharged so much. I could find issues going back into the single digits of X-Factor in the back issue bins for $2 a piece, where I could look at the X-Force issue that came out two weeks ago and it's already $5. So I decided that, okay, I might be able to do this with X-Factor. It's going to take me forever, but I could probably do it. So while my friends were, uh, you know, saving up to pick up the early issues of X-Force that we missed out on or, you know, pooling their lunch money for an entire week to get one chapter from the Muir Island saga, I was in the back issue bins buying the early issues of X-Factor. I bought the first appearance of Apocalypse for for $2 because nobody cared because it was X-Factor. I bought the entire Judgment War for like $1.50 a piece because nobody cared. It was X-Factor. There were a few issues of X-Factor that were hard to find. Uh, If they had... I know the one after the Judgment War that had Sabretooth on the cover was a big one. And, of course, uh, as you got closer to the Peter David run, and you had the uh, Wills Protasio art on those issues, you know, you had the Inhumans show up and they sent baby Nathan into the future. Those were a bit uh, hard to find. But as far as the early ones were concerned, they were... Very plentiful, and they were very, very cheap. And from them, I was able to learn so much about X-Men history. Uh, So much that my friends didn't know because they weren't going to this book. Uh, So much about the original five. Finding out that Cyclops was married. Finding out that Cyclops had a kid. Finding out that, you know, uh, Jean Grey came back. She was never Phoenix, or that she was Phoenix in the first place. All this stuff was brand new to us because we didn't know anything anything about the X-Men. So from X-Factor, I was I became like the the world's lamest Paul Revere. You know, I was just telling people everything I could about everything I knew, which wasn't much, but it was more than I maybe should have if I was just, you know, reading the current day stuff. But X-Factor, very, very special book to me. Um, uh, another story I've told before is how I came into possession of the first issue of it, which was a uh, mall convention. I was at a mall convention at the Sunvet Mall on uh, Sunrise Highway uh, in Long Island. And a mall con, if uh, you're unfamiliar with them, and uh, you know they don't really exist anymore, uh, malls or mall conventions, I suppose, but uh, the thing of it was a bunch of vendors, a bunch of local vendors would show up at a mall, and they'd put up their tables, and they'd put out their wares, and uh, you'd get good deals on stuff because it was like the purest form of a comic book convention. It was just people who wanted to buy and read comics, and I suppose at the time invest in comics, coming together to buy and read and discuss and invest in comic books. And I was digging through one of the boxes here, and I found X-Factor number one. And I was shocked that it was only five dollars because this is you know 1991 1992 where we're trained that these number one issues are just going to break your bank and so when i saw this for five dollars i i busted out the five dollar bill i probably begged my parents for before uh while they were doing food shopping at the pathmark and i bought x-factor number one 
and that was like my first like legacy X-Book number one. Uh, and I, I couldn't have been prouder, which is probably a very, very pathetic thing to say. But at the time, it was uh, it was the coolest thing in the world to me. So anytime X-Factor comes into conversation, it's it always gives me a warm feeling. Because, uh, I, like I said, it just... It informed so much of what I know as the X-Men. And uh, it's probably the first time instance in comics collecting where I became nostalgic for an era that I wasn't a part of. Uh, that's how special those early issues of X-Factor were to me. And a lot of it's right place, right time, and right price, of course. But that doesn't you know, change the fact that these are important to me. So I would always be there for a, a launch of X-Factor. Uh, in Probably around the turn of the century, we had a four-part miniseries, which was pretty bad and had nothing to do with the team, but they used the name anyway. I don't know if they were just trying to keep the copyright going, if that's even a thing that they'd have to do. Uh, we did get that weird four-issue series, and then Peter David came back, and we had X-Factor Investigations, and uh, then that rejoined the legacy numbering. It went from, like, Volume 2, Issue 50, or Volume 3, I suppose it would be, Issue 50 to Volume 1, Issue 200, I believe, in the next issue. And I followed that one through, and I uh, was very disappointed when it... Uh, when it wound up circling the drain and then was brought back as uh, all-new X-Factor, which uh, paired with, I think it was Carmine G- D. Giancomo? <laughs> Carmine. His, this guy Carmine did the art, and I was not a fan of it. I was not a fan of it at all, and didn't really like the uh, the premise either. But I stuck with it because it was X-Factor, and that's kind of what I do. And then here we are with, uh, I suppose this is Volume 4. Of X Factor, and uh, I suppose I've wasted enough of your time with my nostalgia waxing here. So how about we get into this one because I have high expectations for it, which is probably unfair. But uh, we'll see how uh, how it lives up to it here. Uh, let's get right on in. It's uh, X Factor Volume Four, Number One. This had a September 2020 cover date. The story title's a little pretentious or a little precious. It's Sweet Number One Prelude Aurora Moratorium. Okay, uh, and this is not the as precious as they'll get here. I, I was uh, just entering the newest issue into my Excel spreadsheet, and uh, oh boy, <laughs> these names are going to go a little bit further out there. Uh, this is written by Leo Williams, with art by David Baldion. Colors, Israel Silva. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller. Uncredited head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beasel White Sabolski. Cover price, $5.00. It went on sale July 29th of 2020. Now we open at Northstar's place, where he and his husband, whose name nobody seems to remember, are sitting down to have a cup of coffee. John Paul suddenly stops, looks up, and pronounces that his sister Aurora is dead. And so his next stop is the Krakoan hatchery, so he can ask the five to get busy with it a resurrecting. They lambaste him for cutting in line because, you know... They've got a lot of resurrection still on their plate, like 15.5 million of them. Makes me wonder if even any of these characters knew or cared about what we just suffered through on Genosha because of the Scarlet Witch. Probably not. Okay, Northstar continues needling until the five ask him to produce some proof. And, well, he doesn't exactly have any. He just knows that Aurora's dead. It's like uh, one of those twin things, I guess. Now, they tell him that without proof... They're not going to get to work. And, you know, that stands to reason, doesn't it? Northstar isn't sure where to even begin looking for answers, and so they point him towards Sage. 
because of course they do. I think it's in Sage's contract that she must appear in like 80% of our books to suck all the air out of whatever scene she's in. And so, Northstar does just that. He visits Sage, who's just as wildly unpleasant as ever. She seems to have a, a real inferiority complex over her position on Krakoa. She's highly defensive over what her duties entail. Anywho, all she can tell him is that Aurora was last seen hanging out at the Green Lagoon a few days ago. Then she left through a gateway to Vancouver, and that's all anybody knows. So next stop, the Green Lagoon. North Star asks the Blob if he's seen Aurora, to which, yeah, he did, but he can't tell him any, anything much more than he already knows. Then, at the end of the bar, Polaris pipes up. She tells Jean-Paul that he's going about this all wrong. Next, an info page with a rather cringeworthy flyer for what will eventually be X-Factor of Investigations. It comes complete with a line which reads, quote, Quit your bitchin'. Oh, how we doing, fellow edgy teens? We like this? Double page spread of creds, then our roll call. Northstar, Polaris, Dakin or Dakin, I'll probably say it both ways, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Hope, Egg, Elixir, Proteus, and Tempest. Now back to comics. Polaris and Northstar are walking together with the former telling the latter that he ought to be doing certain things to find his supposedly dead sister, and that includes putting together a task force to investigate. Duh. She says they'll need to enlist the aid of some suitable and available folks to help with this research. Dakin, who just so happens to be sitting on the ground nearby, mumbles something about wanting to help. Ah, but they don't want any part of him. Poor guy. Polaris decides to make some suggestions. Prodigy has just been resurrected with his powers, and in fact, we watch him hatch right here. And I gotta wonder if Prodigy was put through the crucible in order to earn this death and repowered resurrection. You'd figure they'd mention that if that were the case, right? Another pick is Rachel, who is currently walking her warwolf puppy, waiting for it to poop. The pup gets a name, too, and it's uh, pretty bad. Uh, we decided to call this warwolf Amazing Baby, which is going to be so awkward to both read and say. Then we get a shot of Eyeboy, who's busy sticking googly eye stickers on his Crocs. Because, lol... Okay. Later, our task force has been organized, and it is Polaris, Northstar, Prodigy, and Prestige, along with Amazing Baby. Lorna suggests that they round out their team by placing an ad on, well, Krakoan Craigslist, I guess. It's called Mutants Unmuted. I'm, I think we've heard of that before. I just can't put my finger on exactly where. And so, it doesn't take long to get our next volunteer, and duh, it's Dakin. So it seems that by hook or by crook, this dude is coming with us. Northstar tells him to go away, but he won't. And here they make sure to reference the fact that Dakin is bisexual twice in his many board balloons, because, I don't know, I guess that's all that matters? Or maybe we're pandering? Who knows? Um, here, there's some forced drama with a mutant child who hates his grandmother, but I really don't feel like recounting that scene all that much. After that, our crew begins getting down to business on the Aurora Hunt. Oh, and Dakin is here because he thinks Aurora is really hot. So he's a very sexual character, don't you know? We might hear a little bit more about that on every page he's on. Uh, they talk about checking Aurora's social media to see what she might be up to, but she doesn't use any. Then our final team member arrives, and it's iBoy. 
He apologizes for being late, to which Dakin rightfully proclaims, and nobody cares anyway. Uh, this Dakin is growing on me a lot here. I, I'm digging this character. Um, he might just be like the, the sleeper character of this, uh, of this series for me. Okay, so how about we now finally get down to business? Our team is directed to a motel in Bellingham, Washington. They check around the room that she was staying in while Dakin heads off to flirt up the front desk clerk. You, you get his gimmick yet? You get it? You get it? Is this supposed to be parody? I, I'm sure it's supposed to be funny, but is it supposed to be like past funny into parody? Because that's the feeling I'm getting. Okay, let's go to the room here. Now, the team struggles to put two and two together until Rachel decides to remind everybody that she has chrono-skimming powers so she can actually see what Aurora was up to the last time she was here. Kind of makes the rest of the team obsolete, doesn't it? Also, why didn't Rachel just lead with that? It's like, hey, we're here. I can do this, you know. (sighs) Anyway, Rachel's powers allow her to see that Aurora used a towel and hairbrush. I mean, if there's a towel and a hairbrush in Aurora's room... Probably stand to reason that she used them. Anyway, Rachel shows them to Amazing Baby, hopeful that the pup might pick up on Aurora's scent. And, well, that's exactly what happens. Now, as the pup and our team run into the parking lot, we see Dakin still flirting up the desk clerk. Well, I guess, actually, at this point, the desk clerk is now flirting him up. He gets a bit of information regarding the car Aurora was driving before excusing himself to rejoin his team. Now, they're led to a bridge which has a busted side rail where Aurora's car might have been driven off into the drink far below. Eyeboy uses his powers to try to pick out the right SUV in the water, and eventually does. There's a lot of cars in this water. Lorna then uses her powers to lift the car out of the water. And bada-bing, bada-boom, it is Aurora's car, complete with a dead Bobbier inside it. Seconds later, Northstar plops his sister's corpse on the floor of the hatchery as proof of her death. (laughs) (laughs) Like, really? It's like, splat. Okay, she's dead. Fix her. Uh, Now, Hope asks how Aurora died, to which Northstar flips the F out. Egg hops in to assure John Paul that they'll get to work ASAP. Then the rest of the team shows up to inform Northstar that they figured out what happened to Aurora. And it's a pretty convoluted tale of an anti-mutant type cutting the brakes on his own car, but having Aurora drive it, and then somehow dying himself in the uh, offing, I guess? I don't know. This is taken to the Quiet Council, where they realize that this might have never come to the surface if not for Northstar's premonition or whatever, you know, twinsy feeling he had. And so the suggestion is made to make this task force a more permanent thing. An X-Factor who can seek out missing mutants, and it is a decent idea, isn't it? The five seconds the motion, and it's put before Xavier and Magneto for final approval, which it gets pretty quickly. I figure they might know that uh, we got to bloat this uh, this line of books while we still can, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Jean Grey and Storm also give the thumbs up, as if it matters. Uh, Storm then tells Lorna to get to work, bringing the mutants home. To which, Lorna's all, hey, I'm not in charge of this team. And so she nominates Northstar for the position. Which, after a moment's hesitation, Jean-Paul accepts. Now, as the council lets out, Magneto and Polaris get a little one-on-one time, and uh, Magneto's a little bit concerned that she'd shirk this responsibility, but doesn't really push the subject. Now, we follow Lorna to a Krakoan clearing where she attempts to chat up the island. Together, they create X-Factor's new digs, which is a place Dakin will name the Boneyard. The team gets comfortable in their new base, and Amazing Baby finally poops. 
X-Factor is then giving a housewarming present from the five in the form of a Krakoan bagel plant. Is that something Krakoa can do? Maybe. Uh, Forge and Sage are also here, the latter of whom is drinking because, of course, someone has to be drinking in this book. How's it going, fellow edgy teens? We like this? Uh, Now Forge shows off something new, something actually very, very cool. They're fleet seeds. They're these little seeds here. They kind of look like ethereal pollen. But they are a way that mutants can anonymously send in their X-Factor request. I really like this idea. This is a, this is a good idea. I think this is something you can actually hinge a series on, and uh, maybe they will. Anywho, no sooner does Forge show these off than X-Factor is absolutely inundated with requests. Like hundreds of them at once. We wrap up with Northstar telling his X-Factor that it's time for them to buckle down and get to work. Now we close out the issue with a few heavily redacted info pages regarding the rules of resurrection. The only one we get a really good look at is Article 5, which refers to X-Factor Investigation's role in deducing proof of death. There are some interesting bits we can't see, like Article 7, which discusses those mutants who wish to not be resurrected, but we can't see anything other than that line. You know, actually, while we're here, let's just go through this page best we can, okay? There are ten articles here. Article 1 is... As we learned in this issue, no resurrection without proof of death first. Perfectly reasonable uh, request, right? Article 2 is something regarding the order in which resurrections will occur. In other words, like cutting in line and whatnot and priorities. Uh, It's redacted, so we don't get a whole lot of it, but that is the gist. Article 3 is another one that's heavily redacted here. It's uh, about force protocol. Not sure what that's in reference to. Uh, I mean, we can joke and suggest that maybe it has something to do with the fact that, like, members of X-Force die all the time. Or maybe we can think a little bit harder and think that Force suggests something along the lines of capital punishment. You know, I I really don't know. This is heavily redacted, but uh, plenty of food for thought. Article 4 is fully redacted. Can't see any of it. Article 5 is the one we covered earlier. That's X-Factor Investigations and their role in deducing proof. Article 6 mentions of Joe and Jane Doe, or John and Jane Doe, uh, maybe suggests something having to do with unidentified mutants, perhaps? You know, anonymous mutants? Yeah, Joe and, I'm sorry, John and Jane Doe mutants, I suppose. Article 7, as mentioned, is the DNR, the Do Not Resurrect. Then Articles 8, 9, and 10 are fully redacted, so... Hopefully, we'll get a little bit more information on these as we go along, if, if they even matter in the first place. But uh, very good use of an info page. I, I liked it. I liked this info page a lot. I gave a little bit of a, a mission statement for uh, what we're trying to do here. I, I liked it quite a bit. But that is X-Factor, Volume 4, Number 1. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Cable Number 2. And it feels like it's been a long time since we covered Cable here, doesn't it? That, that feels like forever ago, but we'll get right back into it next time. But now, let's talk about X-Factor number one. And, uh, you know, it's not any fault of this book, but I think I maybe, perhaps, put a bit too much hope into it. Um, I want to be clear, I didn't dislike this. I didn't dislike this at all. I know I had a little bit of fun with it in the synopsis here. I, I, at the end of the day, I thought it was mostly good. Okay, but I think I might have had higher expectations going in. I had this book pegged, and this is, again, no fault of the book, 
uh, like it would sort of be in my own personal Dawn of X rarefied air, so to speak, alongside books like Marauders and Hellions, books that I had no expectation for that would just blow me away. Kind of an off-center sort of book, but it just turns out to be an unexpected hit, or just something that I really, really personally dig. Again, this was good, mostly. I will say that I definitely felt like we got our $5 worth of story here, because, you know, a lot of stuff happened here. This was a, a fairly substantial issue. And of course, this is all relative, of course, because of late, we've read plenty of $5 books that did not deserve the bloated cost. This one felt like we got a little bit more than a regular issue. And so I can, I can allow it the extra dollar, as if, you know, anything I say means a damn bit of anything. Let's talk about what I felt worked. First of all, and probably most importantly, I like this team. I like this team a lot. I think this is a fun assemblage of characters, and they play well off of each other. I mean, even iBoy fits here, right? I, I, We talked about iBoy, I think it was Giant Size Nightcrawler, and, and I groaned through that because I hate this character. But he worked here. He's not just a funny haha, which it's easy to have someone as silly-looking as iBoy be just the comic relief. Here they used his powers, and they used them well. He, he was actually... Necessary in the position he was in Also it was cool seeing the five get a little bit of panel time Because we're normally seeing them just as the group who resurrects And they're usually in the background of panels and they're being talked about But here we're actually getting them with lines of dialogue I thought that was really really cool And definitely like long overdue You know, I'm trying to think Out of all these Dawn of X books I mean we're up to our 86th issue here the five have been referred to a fair amount, but I don't think we've actually seen them, and they, they certainly haven't had dialogue in very, very many uh, issues. So it's nice seeing them and getting established with them uh, once again. Like I mentioned during the synopsis, I really like the idea of the fleet seeds. Really cool idea, and I feel like it could definitely be used as an organic way of keeping this series moving forward. It's kind of a situation where this title can become like the issue of the month sort of thing, you know, like the one and done sort of, okay, well, this is the mission we have here. And I think in a lot of situations that might feel like filler, but given what's being established here, this book can be like that and it will make sense and it won't feel like filler quite as much, or at least it has a potential not to. And I'm cool with that. And, and so I'm really looking forward to what's to come here. I don't have any sort of advanced knowledge of anything that's coming down the pike for us. So, uh, you know, sky's the limit, I guess. Now let's talk about the stuff I didn't much care for. Uh, first, the art was wildly uneven. Uh, there are some pages here that look really, really good, but also in many the characters are afflicted with, for lack of a better term, severe triangle head. These pages in particular look like like if Umberto Ramos put out a how-to-draw book and then David Baldion only read like the first five pages of it. You know, some of them are rather hard to look at. Just not, uh, not, not great. Of course, there were, very, there were very good pages here as well. So just very uneven. Maybe that had to do with the, you know, the extra size of the first issue. I don't know. Gotta mention Dakin. Um... The depiction of Dakin, or Dakin, I don't know how to say this dude's name, I'm sorry. It felt, like, so forced that it was almost offensive. Um, like, I get what they're going for here, right? 
And uh, here's my you know third or fourth edgy teens reference here, but it's like I, I guess we're all edgy teens who are totally obsessed with identity politics and can't think of anything but. But can we maybe try and flesh out his character other than hinging every single thing on his sexuality? It feels like they're doing a disservice to the character and to whatever they're trying to whatever point they're trying to get across here. It makes me want to ask: Are there any teenagers actually reading this? Who knows? Is, is it just stupid 40-year-old men like me? <laughs> Maybe. Um, finally, you know, some of the dialogue here was, I don't want to say bad, but just not what I wanted to read. That's not a fault of the book, just a personal preference sort of thing. Uh, some of it felt a little too clever, a little too snarky. Um, you know, it goes back to a, a common complaint that I've been making of late, where it feels like it feels like we're watching a TV commercial where everybody has to be snarky and sarcastic and sassy, and uh, everything is tinged with like really, really try-hard comedy. And uh, it's not what I want to be reading in every single panel. You know, it's okay to have that on occasion, but it's just like as I was dealing with snark, it was like I was dodging anvils. It was just a, tor- a torrent of them. Um, and it wasn't the entire book. It was not the entire book. A lot of it was very good, but there were parts that were just a bit much for me. And maybe that has to do with my age. Maybe that has to do with my expectations. Again, not the fault of a book that uh, may or may not be you know, being written for me. And that's perfectly fine. But uh, for the most part, I enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to what's to come. And really, at the end of the day, you can't ask for a whole lot more than that. So X Factor Volume 4, number one, gets a thumbs up. Thumbs up from me. Uh, There were a few things that got under my skin, but that's just going to happen. So that is pretty much everything I have to say about this issue. Um, Right now, I would usually send it over to the mailbag, but the mailbag's empty. The mailbag is empty for the first time in a very long time, and um, I'm hoping that has more to do with the fact that Empire colon X-Men didn't inspire a whole lot of conversation, rather than people just are, you know, done writing to me. But uh, I I totally understand in either case, as a matter of fact. But uh, yeah, Empire X-Men was our last four episodes, and I don't know that that really inspired a whole lot of discussion. Those were some of my more negative episodes, which... To me, I always feel like like are the weakest episodes because uh, if you're not excited about what you're talking about, um, it shows, you know. And it's something I worry about. It's something I did worry about during those episodes. I felt like I might be too negative on them uh, to the point where I even reached out to some listeners to run my thoughts by them to see if they thought I was being too negative. So I guess we'll just chalk that one up to a loss and hope for better things to come. But uh, if anyone out there would like to write to me, please feel free. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook about anything you want at 90sxmen on Facebook, and you can hear all of the audio archive stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today and uh, introducing the final Wave 2 Dawn of X book, X Factor. Hope you all enjoyed it, and as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.